Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Ramble Meets is sponsored by Bet365. Jonathan Wilson, journalist, historian, lone wolf. Jonathan, um, we are used to reading all about your books and knowing you as a, a prominent author, particularly in football. What's the most important thing, other than being able to write, of course, that an author needs? Um. Patience, I guess. Uh, you know, writing a book is a long process. You know, you, you don't do it in a week. You, it takes uh, a year, near enough. Uh, Angels of Dirty Faces took three and a half years. So you've got to be prepared to, to do, the, do the research, do the legwork. Um, you'll often find yourself spending days researching something that turns out to be half a line. Right. And people always appreciate the wrong bits of books. Yeah. You know, there'll, there'll be things that kind of, when you found out, you're like, people you know, will not have a clue how hard it was to discover that or how crucial that fact is. Mm. And then some will go, oh, brilliant when you talked about this. And you're like, oh, I literally took like 10 minutes. <laughs> okay. And the... But and you the can, yeah, not all the readers are stupid. It's fine. <laughs> no, okay. The research is the platform then, right? So say if you were learning the piano, you want to play all these beautiful pieces, you need to know the scales and need to know the basic stuff first. And that's really what underpins a good, a good book. Uh, yeah. Although um, I wonder if scales aren't just kind of just writing every day. Um, mm. I mean, I, I know not everybody would write every day, but I, I would find it, I think, very difficult not to. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I, I enjoy the sort of um, the variety of doing the the sort of eight hundred word Guardian pieces, and then the because you know, there's a certain discipline to that, isn't there? 
Yeah, and and you know the the odd occasions, and it doesn't happen very often, but you know, once a year or whatever, when you know, you have an idea, and you know, suddenly it all sort of pops out in one beautifully formed pellet. Yeah, and yeah, you know, the eight in the words is taking you maybe forty minutes, and you read it through, and you don't have to change anything because it's all come out perfectly. perfectly yeah, those are great moments. They're very rare, but they how are, often do you get those? Maybe once a year, once every okay. two years, maybe. Um, I mean, I, I I kind of developed this theory, and it worked for a little while that. I would try and have an idea before I went to bed and then wait, get up early the next morning, so four or five o'clock the next morning. This was because it, it once worked when having to get an early flight. Right. Um, you know, got up early the next morning and when you're sort of half asleep, you sort of think your subconscious has done the work for you and it, you know, it splurges out. Yeah. Um, and occasionally it does work, but it's, it's, I think I've overused that tactic now. It's not really... And okay. also it's a terrifying thought because if you're relying on your subconscious to do it, you're not really in control. No, you're not doing it. What so. happens when your subconscious gives up? You, you haven't got any kind of any mechanics to go back to. It kind of reminds me of that. Um, you're probably more familiar with this story than I am. I think was it it's certainly a philosopher. I think it might have been Bertrand Russell. He decided to get the um, the the secret to the universe. He decided to get as high as he could on whatever substance was around back then, and then without thinking about it, just write a couple of sentences down, and obviously just zonk out. And then when he woke up the next morning, he found he had written a smell of petroleum prevails throughout. <laughs> <laughs> So it could be quite similar to that. How do, I mean, how did it all start for you? Um, clearly, you don't emerge from the the womb as a fully formed great writer or author. So, so what, what's give us a sort of insight into your journey? Uh, I mean, that's that's a very grand word, but um, I mean, there's two ways of, of looking at that. One is that from the age of sort of five, you know, from the first time I could really write, I was writing football match reports. Wow, okay. Uh, I mean, of games involving my teddy bears and whatever. Sure, okay, yeah. Um, very, very solid team. They're very, you know, very yeah, were they? At, very good at the back. You know, the, the what team. formation? I think I think they played, a, a, I mean, it's very advanced for the time. We're talking sort of 1980, 81, but I think they played sort of a prototype 3 4 3. I thought when you were growing up, it'd be a WM win. Like <laughs> that's a tactic. Well, 3 3 4 3 is a WM in yes, some ways. That's true, yeah. We're not yeah. going into that yet. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Um, so, yeah, in a sense, I was always doing it, but it never really occurred to me I could do that as a career. And I started working for the Sunderland fanzine, I Love Supreme, uh, 92-ish, so when I was sort of 15, 16. Is there a reason they're named after a John Coltrane uh, thing? Because they're named after John Coltrane. That's just it? Right, that is yeah, it, okay. yeah. Okay, because some of them, some of the fanzine names have got a particular, very, very specific reasons for their name. Yeah, I just, I just think... The, the editor just loved John Coltrane. I, I presume that's, okay. that's the truth of it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you famously don't like music, do you? So I don't like it. I just don't know anything about it. I just don't know if you have room for it. You told me that you don't like hearing more than one sound at the same time. Well, that's definitely true. I really struggle <laughs> if there's two noises going on at once. Right, okay. Like if somebody rings me from beside a busy road, I'm... Okay, I, I just, so it's across the board, not just in the musical yeah, sphere. I just, yeah, uh, but I think, well, that's my explanation for why I'm just not that fussed by music. Okay. I kind of... Okay. Yeah, you know, two two sounds at once, and I just can't be bothered to, to, to separate okay. them out. You could like some quite minimalist techno, then perhaps <laughs> to try and find out. I mean, yeah, these are just words. I don't <laughs> okay, go carry on. Sorry. Um, so then I went. Yeah, I went to university, um, and there was a lad in the year above me started doing some freelancing for Match of the Day magazine, mm-hmm. um, which in those this is late nineties, so it was it, it was aimed at at adults. It wasn't sort of the kids' magazine it became. Right. And I, you know, I sort of thought that, that seems like a, a good way of making a bit of money. So, I, you know, I, I also started doing that. Uh, so this is sort of ninety ninety eight ish. What university? Oxford. Okay. Uh, what were you studying? English literature. Okay. And then I went to Durham and did a masters there. Okay. Um. Uh. But I, yeah, I still wasn't really thinking of it as a career. And then um, 
I needed to get a first to get on the Masters course at Oxford. Only got a 2-1. Went to Durham. Uh, did my Masters there. Got accepted to do a, a doctorate at York. Mm-hmm. Um, but I couldn't get funding. And I'd sort of become right. pretty disillusioned. I mean, it's not uncommon. A lot of people don't get funding in the first year of a, of a doctorate in the like humanities. That. Okay. Uh, which I guess is fair enough for testing how how serious you are about it. Right. But I, I'd become pretty disillusioned with academia by then anyway. What were you planning on doing for your doctorate? It was going to be on um, constructions of imperial masculinity in the works of Kipling and Conrad, um, okay. which is kind of, uh, is, is is not unrelated to the beginnings, the origins of football. I can see what you mean. Yeah, okay. um, yeah. You know, a lot of the research I'd done for, for that... Um, Became, you know, came in useful when I was doing the early sections of, of inventing the pyramid. Yeah, okay. Um, and then when you know when I didn't get funding, I sort of thought I, I can't I can't justify this. I can't I can't afford doing this. Yeah. Uh, so I worked, did some tenant work in the northeast up in Sunderland. Worked in factories and offices. Um, and then there was three mates taking a house in in Tooting in London, and they had a fourth bedroom. So I moved in with them, assuming. Uh, correctly, but not really doing the maths properly. That temping work would be paid better in London right. because everything else is more expensive in London. Of course, so yeah, yeah. I, I lost money on it. Yeah, uh, and then did a three-month journalism course. Uh, first three months of two thousand, finished that, um, and I gave myself a fortnight to write to as many different people as as possible, saying this is who I am, this is what I've done, give yeah. me a job. Yeah, and I thought after at the end of the fortnight, I'm going to have to go back into temping. Yeah, uh, and on the Thursday of the second week, um, I went went to dinner with a, with a few friends, and one of my mates from university brought along her new boyfriend. He was this tiny little guy, but he was an internet millionaire, which in the late nineties or the early two thousands was a thing you occasionally met. Yeah, well, he, every second person in London yeah. at that time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he said uh, these two websites are recruiting. Why don't you email them? Yeah, so I emailed them both on the Friday, and one of them, onefootball.com got back in touch and said, come in for an interview on the Monday. Yeah. And I started work there on the Tuesday. And this was a paid position, presumably, back then? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was, okay. I mean, it was freelancing, but it was a, a paid position, yeah. Okay, and then they gave you freedom to write about whatever you wanted, or...? Well, OneFootball um, was was actually... Um, it was ahead of its time, really. It kind of... It took foreign football seriously in a way that people generally didn't at the, at the time in, in England. Um, so I, I think we had... I think we covered 17 countries to start with. And I, that gradually expanded. Uh, and then just the way things worked, I, mean, I was very fortunate, A, that sort of that gave me that sort of international perspective. Mm. Uh, B, that you know, there was a steady income there, but part of the job was trying to sell our pieces to papers and magazines. So I you know, got in the right. habit of, of selling stuff yeah, okay. and working out what would sell and, yeah. and, and what you could use to... to what to kind m- of articles newspapers would want, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And what, what I could do that other people weren't doing. Mm. Uh, and then because yeah, you know, I was obviously very junior, uh, and so the the more mainstream countries had already been taken. So you know, there's somebody who it, it, it wasn't that one person did all the sp- Spanish stuff, but he would mm. sort of oversee it. Yeah, and the same with Italy and Germany and France. So I ended up. What did you get lumbered with? Eastern Europe. Okay, which was great because yeah. uh, I had a pre-existing interest in Eastern Europe. The first place I ever went that wasn't Britain was uh, well Slovenia, Yugoslavia. Yeah. Uh, so I've been to Yugoslavia five times before the war. Right. Um, I went on a school exchange to Russia in '92, just before the coup attempt against Gorbachev. Right. Um, so That's pretty interesting for that time. Yeah. Time of, time of history to go to Russia on an exchange. Yeah, it was. It, yeah. Looking back on this, that doesn't seem a bit odd. It, yeah, it does. Frankly, yeah, okay. looking yeah. back. What are your um, memories of that? 
awful food. Just right. dreadful food. Yeah, okay. Uh, so we're in Moscow. And presumably a Russian student came to stay with you as well. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Yelena. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, took her to, I want to say Sunderland v Everton, but we okay. can't have played them in 92. Anyway, can't come back to you. Yeah. Um, and, that, and that sort of sort of stoked a fire in you for that part of the world, basically. Yeah, I mean, I think just when you're a kid and you kind of go into cafes in, in Yugoslavia and there's, you know, portraits of, I mean, Tito had died, what, four years earlier? Mm-hmm. Uh, three years earlier. And there's, you know, portraits of Tito on the walls. Right. And you understand that although Yugoslavia is pretty soft communism, this is a different way of life. It's a different yeah. way of doing things. Um, and yeah, that does that does make an impression, definitely. Yeah. Okay, and so, and so fast forwarding back to you're at one football, and, and at, at that point you're thinking, this is for me, this is what I want to do. I mean, because I've I've seen you quoted in the past saying that, to be honest, you never really considered yourself wanting to be a football writer. It just seemed a bit of a laugh, like a fun thing to do. But at that point, did it become more serious, more solidified oh, in look, your mind? Once I started one football, I was taking it very seriously. Right, okay. was, I mean, when I say a fun thing to do, I, I sort of saw it as an adjunct to an academic career as a way of making a bit of cash on the side. Right, okay. Um, and in all honesty, you know, there's there's many ways of doing journalism, and the sort of the hard news end is not for me at all. Right. Uh, you know, the the chasing stories. Well, not even the investigative side where you go and work on a project, that kind of thing. Yeah, that okay, it can be. I mean, yeah, in some ways, the most um, satisfying is totally the wrong word, but the most the thing I was doing at the time felt the most useful was when we uncovered that massacre in, in Gabon, which yeah. nobody cared about, which was incredibly frustrating. Yeah. But that was proper work. You know, it was. Yeah. It's a rewarding thing to do. It was just, well, just a sense of what you're doing has a purpose. It's worthwhile. This is, you know, it's yeah. Because sometimes when you're talking about, um, you know, has has this fullback damaged his hamstring or not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, of who course. cares, really? And and that's actually an interesting point and and something I did want to ask you about. And it's the same thing I would level at someone like perhaps Andy Brassel, who obviously also of this parish, where we see us us sort of you know regular common or garden people, if you like, see people like you, people like Andy. Uh, brain the size of a planet, all the rest of it. Very intelligent, very clever, very hardworking. And I think sometimes the tendency to want to ask the question, why are you just, if for want of a better term, slumming it in football? When I, you could I really, I really don't see it as slumming it at all. Right. Okay. Um, and I, I, I think I don't understand why. Certainly in Britain, we're guilty of this. I think other countries may be less guilty of it, mm. but we're just not taking football seriously enough. And I don't mean football in the sense of. Yeah, who won the title or whatever. Yeah, but what it means to society, the context yeah, of it. Yeah, you know, you know, we take literature or music or art really seriously. This can give us an insight into the human condition. Yeah, and that's why it's valuable. Mm. Um, well, there's no cultural mode more popular than football. Mm. Um, and I think in some ways the fact that the way you play the game. Um, I mean, this is sort of you know the obvious Camus point about morality, mm. but you know the way you behave on a on a football pitch or a cricket pitch or, or whatever tells you a huge amount about who you are and how you're likely to react mm. on you know under pressure when you're desperate to win. Mm. Yeah, do you do you say yeah, nick that and, and walk off? Yeah. Do you do you appeal for the throne when you know it's not yours? Yeah. Um, but but also just how how do you approach the winning of a game? What what are you you know what 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 process do you go through what what compromises are you prepared to make um, and you know some people you know there's, there's definitely a, a, a small section of 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 the Argentinian footballing society who think that playing in the right way is more important than winning um, and that's I think there's reasons for that and I think the reasons why it's so strong in Argentina are, are interesting 
it's, it's you know it's it's um uh when you know when they're under the the, the military dictatorship which you know what we talk about now as a military dictatorship was mm. depending what yeah what you define as a military dictatorship the fourth or the fifth they had you know they had a series of coups post 1930 mm. um when your politics and everyday life is so cynical and depressing and you have this sort of brutalism. This is the escapism. The, the, sorry, not brutalism. Brutality is yeah. a sort of an everyday part of life. Well, how how do you express a difference? How do you express something um, transcendent? You describe it as quite subversive as well. There, really, yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah. I mean, yeah. and that certainly is how Minotti uh, subsequently tried to portray seventy eight. Maybe he, maybe it's Backfield genuine. The narrative. I, I honestly don't know. I mean, Minotti is a strange man with strange ideas. Yeah. Uh, maybe he, maybe it's completely genuine. Maybe that is how he saw it in the mid seventies. Maybe it's a way he subsequently justified it to himself. Yeah. And I think that struggle within him, within his, yeah, he 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 must know that Argentina winning the World Cup in nineteen seventy eight prolonged the life of the hunter, yeah. and he must feel some level of guilt for that. Legitimised them, popularised them. In yeah, a way it just made people otherwise. feel good about themselves. Yeah, made, okay. made people be you know, be able to say, look, we can stand up on a global More willing stage. To accept. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, and. You know, you know, his excuse is, is is maybe the wrong word because that, that implies that he doesn't fully believe it. But his way of justifying it is to say, no, we were going back to the 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 principles of the nineteen twenties of the nineteen thirties when football was art, when when there was this joy and, and creativity in society, and and so we were giving that back to the people. Now, I don't know how true that is. I don't know whether that is really what happened. Mm. Um, I don't. I'm not even sure he does, but. Mm. His book, uh, Football Scene Tramper, Football Without Tricks, Without Deception, mm. is entirely about that, about that 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 struggle between um, the cynicism and pragmatism of of of, uh, of the government and the artistry that, that he claims he was trying to um, promote. So clearly, when you first became interested in football as a child, you, you weren't thinking in this way because no one does at that age. But... What are you, Jonathan? Are you saying that as you as you got older and as you developed as a human being, you became more interested in how football intersects with society and with culture than you are with just the game itself? Um, yes and no. I'm interested in both. I still watch a game, and I'm fundamentally interested in who's going to win. On its own terms, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, I don't go to a Sunderland match and sort of thing. Yeah, but, you, but you haven't. But you presumably, very consciously, haven't trodden the path where you just talk about football issues, where you just talk about match reports, where you just write about very simple things of how football... You could be writing for a newspaper as a staffer doing this kind of stuff, but you haven't chosen to do that. I haven't chosen to do that. I haven't been given the opportunity to do that. I'm not I'm not really sure. I, 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 you know, I, I'm not certain there's any great plan or anything. Right. It's just the way things have panned out. Hmm. And I sort of feel like I've just done what what I felt like doing. Mm. Uh, there's obviously been times when you've churned out stuff you've been told to do and you've had you get to get on with it because yeah, that's, okay. you know, you know we can be too precious. Yeah. If that's the job, that's the job. Yeah. Um, but I've been lucky that I've been able to do stuff that interests me. And I mm. think you can tell, right? If, you, if, you, if you're if you interested in something, you're going to write it better than if you're not interested in it. Yeah. No matter how professional a job you do, it's going to be a level above if you actually care. It's just an extension of the the old mantra, which is you've got to be yourself, because otherwise people will see through it sooner or later. Well, I, th- I think that's very true. I mean, it, yeah. it's interesting what you say, because about um, not just writing about matches. Mm. I mean, Inverting the Pyramid set out to be about football as it's played on the pitch. Yeah. It then turns out to be something entirely different, but it, that really wasn't the plan. The plan was to strip away all the nonsense and go back to... This is what happens when eleven people play eleven. Just why, or, or almost also as well, why we play football the way we do in two thousand eight, 
and what the genesis of that is, right? And yeah. how it's all linked together, how these things cross over and, and there's different, they, they relate to each other. Well, uh, yeah, and really the, 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 the new stuff in the book is about those interrelations. That I th- what I found was every country uh, had a pretty clear idea, there's a couple of exceptions, uh, but essentially every country had a pretty idea of how they played football and how that had developed, mm. but they never linked it with other countries. And so it was it was that tracing um, how things were cross-pollinated yeah. that is what is new in Inverting the Pyramid. And so then it becomes a book about how knowledge and information travels. Yeah. And that, what you find is, and it's partly perspective, obviously, the longer ago it is, the easier it is to say, you know, to, to, to map the, the course. You know, the, when you get close to the present day, it's very hard to know where you're going. Yeah, and what will turn out? You might you might write about something and find out in five years it's been completely forgotten about. It's, it's not important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, um, what was I saying? Um, about the exchange of information and how it's changed over. Cause, 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 uh, yeah. So, so what you what you find is now because everything is televised yeah. and everybody has access to everything. Yeah. And all the best players play in essentially three or four leagues, five leagues if you count PSG. Um. There's this huge mashup at the top of the game, and every, yeah. everything's being transferred all the time. So whereas, the paths aren't as clear, are they? Yeah. Whereas back in the 30s, a man goes from Hungary to Brazil, yeah. and radically changes Brazilian football. Yeah, that just doesn't happen now. Yeah. Well, the world's obviously a lot smaller in a lot of ways. But before we before we get on to um, inverting the pyramid, because I do want to talk about that. I want to talk about your first book, which is um, Behind the Curtain. And clearly, this is a this is a, a coming together of these things you've already talked about: this love of football, uh, an interest in Eastern Europe. And is it right to say that behind the curtain, your book about Eastern European football is almost an extension of the work you were doing at One Football? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. A lot of the stories I've become aware of while working for One Football, a lot of the contacts. Did you go to a publisher and say, I've got this idea, and they said, yeah, just do it? Well, yeah, what happened, um, there was actually one of the friends who was at the, the dinner party I was talking about where the another friend's yeah. boyfriend said, you know, email these two websites. Yeah. Um, she was working as a publicist um, for a publisher, and she knew David Luxton, who was manager of Sports Pages on Charing Cross Road, great sports bookshop. And she knew he was leaving to become an agent, mm-hmm. but didn't have any clients. And she knew I wanted to write books. And so she said, you know, why don't you have a chat? So David Luxton is now, I think, probably the uh, the biggest football football writing agent in, in Britain. Is he still your agent now? I still, yeah, still my agent, yeah. 13 um, years strong, eh? Yeah, well, a longer friendship. than that. Um, I mean, this would have been back in, what, 2003? Oh, okay, I suppose. The book came out in 06, but you didn't work yeah, before that. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I had a, had a chat with him and talked through some ideas of what I could do, and the one that he thought would be most interesting to, to publishers was was sort of a travel book going on Eastern Europe and mm. looking at how things had changed since communism, which gives you the opportunity to look at how things are you know, now, as as was in what, 2004, 2005. It is part, tra- it is part travel book, isn't it, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it has to be as well. I think I think, I think that structure works. Um, and then, you know, he, he took it to a few publishers. The editor at Orion um, was ill for a while, so it was a long sort of delay, and I didn't, you know, didn't think the thing was getting off the ground. Mm. And then I was in Gelsenkirchen for the Champions League final in 2004. I was literally just outside the ground and got the phone mm. call saying, yeah, we've got the deal. Right. Uh, which Amazing. Was, which is brilliant. Yeah. Is it a one book deal or a few books? Or? No, no, just one book. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, we're going to take a quick break, I think. And I'm going to gloss over the book you wrote after that about Sunderland purely <laughs> because they've just been defeated by my team in the Czech Trade Trophy. And I don't want to be seen as unfair. Um, but we will talk about inverting the pyramid. So don't go away. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to this episode of Ramble Meets with Jonathan Wilson, sponsored by Bet365. Now, I promised before we would the break we would talk about inverting the pyramid. This is the first book of yours that I read. And I think it achieves quite an incredible thing if you will allow me to be hagiographic for oh, a moment. Oh, please, yeah, please. Yeah. I've never had a problem with that. Uh, I'm sure. Um, is that it's not at any point boring, even though it's talking about football tactics <laughs> at some point, involving a load of players that I'd never heard of. And of course, it gets, by its very nature, more interesting as it goes on because you start to relate to the people and you can pitch them in your mind and all the rest of it because it takes you through the history of, the, uh, of, 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 of football tactics. Did you expect it to be as popular and as kind of crossovery as it's been, for want of a better word? God, no. 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 I no. mean, nobody did. But there has really been. I mean, I, I mean, and I do want to talk about Brian Clough in a, in a wee while as well, but this has probably been your most celebrated work, hasn't it? Oh, definitely. I mean, it's sold far, far more copies. I mean, in, in, in terms of the UK edition, it's sold... 12, 13 times more than any other book. I think it must have sold... No, that's not true, because the Clough book did, did all right. So it's sold... I don't know, three times more than the Clough book. Right. And, mm. uh, and then it's been translated into, I don't know, 17, 18 different languages. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's, I, I was, I was very, I think it was a, uh, there was a, an interest in tactics that was not being met. And, How did you have the idea? Then? And I How did to, you find that well, out? Well, I, I mean, I think I was very fortunate. I caught, I caught the wave. Yeah. yeah. The wave was coming and somebody was going to catch it and I was just lucky the timing was right. Yeah. So yeah, what what happened, um, I actually got the deal before the deal for the Sunderland book. The Sunderland book was sort of a rush um, at the end of a season when Roy Keane was our manager, partly because the CEO of Orion uh, is a Sunderland fan. Right, okay. What, I think he's still there. Okay. Um, and so he suddenly said, 
here's some cash, write a book on Sunderland's promotion. Right. And because I was so superstitious in a ridiculous way, I refused to write a word of it until the promotion was guaranteed, okay. which meant I had to write the whole thing in like three weeks. Right, okay. Um, so, yeah, I remember um, I was covering uh, England v West Indies cricket up at Durham. It was like my, my parents were away, so I was staying in a hotel in Durham, which is quite weird, staying in a hotel. Yeah, in your hometown. Yeah. I mean, I could have stayed at home, but but Sunderland to Durham, or Sunderland to Chelsea, is quite a difficult journey yeah. if you don't have a car. Um, anyway, uh, so I was getting up at like four in the morning to to get that done. Right. Yeah, doing six hours work and then going to the, to the cricket. Blimey, okay. Um, uh, so yeah, uh, before that I got the got the deal from Birkenham Pyramid and it was literally me, my agent, my editor sitting around saying, what are you going to do next? Yeah, okay. And I'd just done a big piece for 442 magazine. I think, you know, like 10, 10,000 word piece that ran over two issues on sort of 10 key stages in the history of tactics. Have you always been interested in football tactics? Yeah, because I'm rubbish at football. Yeah, okay. Um, so you, you, the way around that is to be able to to think it better than other people. Okay. I couldn't kick it better than other people, but I could think it. Yeah. So, I mean, regularly at university, I would sub myself off. Sounds like something that Rigo Saki would kind of say. (laughs) Yeah, well, (laughs) but I'm very much the English Saki. Yeah, okay, is that right? Okay, Okay, right. In his shoe salesman stage, right? I'm I'm Saki (laughs) with hair. Yeah, Yeah, okay. Um, He's a lovely man, actually. He was really helpful, really friendly for for that book. Um, He's quite an interesting guy. I don't want to get too much into it, but he is a guy who owes more to the Dutch method of football than the Italian one, right? Yeah, no, he would say the acts of the early 70s were his his model. The great great phrase he used was, whenever he watched them, he felt the TV wasn't big enough. Right, he wanted okay. to see more of what they were doing. Nice, okay. But yeah, I spent a day with him. He owns a farmhouse uh, near near Milan. Hmm. And um, I'm sure you won't mind me saying this now. Gad Mocotti, great man. I imagine he won't listen. <laughs> I'm sure you'll get away with it. He was doing his biography of Capello. Right. And he wanted Saki on Capello, but knew that Saki wouldn't agree right. to do an interview about Capello. Just about Capello. So you've got it in through so, the back door with this so, one. So Mocotti says to me, I can fix up an interview for you with Saki. I'll come along and translate. I'm like, this is very oh, nice. What's is, going on? Yeah, and that is quite underhand. That. Yeah. is that is that is that the manner befitting the man? Would you say? Look, we both got what we wanted. Out of the okay, deal. right. Okay. And Arrigo okay. Saki was happy enough that when he was on the judging panel for Italian Football Book of the Year, he gave it to, to the Pyramid. Great. So Saki, lovely man. Good. Um, but you had to go all the way back to the start with this. I mean, you would have, you, you literally start off talking about football in the nineteenth century. Yeah. And so, how easy was that to not only try and ascertain what teams were trying to do but also find sources that, that actually confirmed that for you it's difficult to be honest um, and you, you're often trying to interpret um, journalism from the time and the problem with that is that football journalism is very back then was very immature it's very nascent right I don't really know what they're yes. talking about anyway so there's not a sort of um, there's no consensus on what words mean hmm. Um and then there's some really, you know, some really odd stuff. Uh, so the first ever international eight in '72, when England went up to Partick to play Scotland, and Charles W. Alcock, great man of Sunderland, yeah. uh, who left to go to Harrow at a very young age, um, he, okay. you know, the man who invented, you know, he invented the FA Cup, he invented international yeah. football, um, and he, you know, he wrote a piece about the team he took up, and in his description of the team, it's a uh, a one two seven. And the seven has more players, has sort of four players on the left and three on the right. Right. And you sort of think, that's a bit odd, but maybe it makes sense if you've got right-footed, most of your players are right-footed, so yeah. you're sweeping long balls out to the left will be the natural, yeah. or maybe that's just the players who are available to go on the train, I don't know. Yeah, yeah okay. And so I was like, well, I think this is quite important. I'll, I'll put that in and say, like, I don't really know why this is, these are a couple of theories. 
And then the Ladybird Book of Football, which was republished a couple of years ago, it's got a tactical diagram of that first game. This came out in the, like, the 60s originally. Right. It's got its one two seven with extra players on the left. doesn't explain it, but they right. obviously found... I mean, maybe the same source. Yeah, okay. But I'd love to know where they got that from, because I thought I was the only person who really found this. Some of these questions are never going to be answered, though, are they? No, no, no. no um, did you not just put a phone call into Brian Glanville at some point? <laughs> we could help I you. did talk to... I mean, Glanville is, yeah, Glanville is a great source of information, and... Yeah. Although he had a reputation of being quite difficult in, in his heyday, these days he's incredibly generous of his time with information. Yeah, yeah that's good. And he, yeah, he's been very helpful. I, you know, yeah. He's a, yeah, he's a great man, Glenville. And you, and you essentially achieved what you set out to do, which is trying to explain how this worked. And you did it in a very... Clearly, I mean, and, and actually, you don't even really need me to say it because clearly the, the book sales themselves will justify what I'm saying there. But because ultimately you probably i hope i'm not being unfair but you probably didn't really expect a book about the history of football tax to sell very well no and, and like, how did you convince orion to let you do it well actually the the editor had um had already commissioned a book on the history of football tactics by um a, a journalist who used to work for the times called peter ball okay and he died while writing it oh right okay uh, so i was stepping in dead men's shoes right the guy who did the illustrations for the ta- for the you know, the tactical diagrams, he also died while doing it. Blimey. So it's a, it's the a, curse of inverting the pyramid. <laughs> Pyramids, mate. You've got to be yeah, careful. Know, exactly, yeah. I blame the Illuminati. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, there's a danger that this will sound arrogant. I really don't mean it to. Um, I think you'll all be all right. In the, in the same room as me, mate, you're always going to be fine. Don't worry. <laughs> but like, I've never... You know, while writing that book, um, I, you know, I've, I've never had such a sense of yeah, this is this is what I wanted to do. This is this is exactly what I intended. Mm. Um, and so, towards the end, I was literally waking up in the morning and vomiting the tension in case I fucked it up. Were you really okay? So yeah. you're aware of your own place in history, then? Is what well, you're saying? Uh, it was, all, and I got to the point where I didn't really care if it sold. It was just like this is exactly what I wanted this book to be. I've mm. never had that with any other book. Mm. And I suspect I never will again. Mm. Um, but you might do. Yeah, maybe. I mean, or maybe I'm just older and cynical and don't get like that anymore. Yeah. But like that sense of sort of tension and excitement and kind of... So how old were you when you were writing it? Uh, it came out in 2008, so I guess... Because it was written very quickly. It only took like nine months, which, yeah. I, again, looking back... Yeah. Ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'd like I'd thought about it for a, a long time. Yeah. So, yeah, I was, I was sort of 31, I guess. Okay. 30, 30 to 31 when I was writing it. Um, and, you know, I went to, went to Argentina for the first time. Um, met a lass over there who ended up being with for three and a half years. Mm. So that that led to me going back to Argentina a lot, which then of course leads to to angels. angels yeah, and that you know a lot of a lot of what I've done since has been expanding ideas I had while writing. But some some people out there will be thinking, how do you afford to pay the bills and get around and do all this travelling I mean, when you when you're writing a book? I mean, was, did you get an advance from a publisher, which I understand is a very rare thing these days? No, you get you get an advance. Yeah, okay, um, enough to sort of get by for the research you need to do and all that kind of thing. Yeah, but I mean, also I was doing other writing at the same time. I wasn't just doing the book. I was I was um, I mean, so yeah, this was two thousand seven eight. So it was a tail end of working for the Financial Times. Right. So I would be doing. Yeah, three or four pieces a week for them. Mm-hmm. I was doing stuff for various magazines. Um, I think I probably started writing for the Guardian then. Yeah, I had. I think I started at the Guardian in two thousand six. So I was still freelancing. And you know, the, the you just got to be smart when you do the travel that you you don't go and only do the stuff for the book. You, you make it work for you. Yeah, yeah. You, you kind of make sure you talk to as many people as possible and you get stories out of that. Yeah. Okay. And in two thousand six. Um, David Peace wrote the Damn United, I think I'm right in saying it's 2006, about Brian Clough and his time at Leeds. Uh, then I know you wrote a book about England um, 
in between in between these two books, but I don't think we're short of England content at the moment. So we'll gloss over that if you don't mind. When you decided to write the biography of Brian Clough, did 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 anything to do with what David Peace did give you the idea for doing it, or did you just always have the idea in your mind because he's from what your neck of the woods and all that? Yeah, no, I mean I, I never had the idea of doing it. What what happened was, okay. um, I think it was off, probably off the back of the Peace book and uh, the film. Um, Orion, my publishers, had commissioned Richard Williams from the Guardian. Uh, who is from Nottingham? Yeah. Um, Stop is, taking other people's jobs for goodness is sake. Is a big, is a big, <laughs> um, big uh, Forest fan. Um, so we commissioned him to do it, and he found it quite difficult to write about uh, the later stages of Clough and the alcoholism and right. And so he basically decided he couldn't do it. Right. Uh, Did he know him personally, or? I think he knew the family to an extent. Right. Because um, Duncan Hamilton wrote a great book about it as well uh, called Provide You Don't Kiss Me. Yeah. And he knew he knew Bright Clough intimately, didn't he? Well, he worked with him for, because he was working on the Nottingham Evening Post. Right. He worked with him for a long time, yeah. yeah that came across as a very affectionate um, uh, yeah, piece of uh, work. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, it's a great book. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Ryan came to me and said, do you, you know, do you, given Richard, he doesn't want to do it in the way we want to do it. Mm. Will you take it on? Mm. So then there's a lot of negotiation going on. I don't, you know, between agents and things, I don't really know mm. what happened. But so I was suddenly presented with, here's some money, do you want to do it? Mm. And at the time, this was 2010, um, and my dad was very ill for spending a lot of time up in Sunderland, which is obviously the ideal place to research it. Yeah. And he was my dad's favourite player. Right. Um, so it which, felt like the right thing to do. Yeah. And, and well, there was something I have to say that never quite, I never quite been able to understand. I mean, my dad. Um, in footballing terms, quite like me in that he, you know, he liked his uh, neat, tidy, industrious holding midfielders. Right, and he was sort of instinctively suspicious of people who scored too many goals. He thought right. it was a bit, little bit flash. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. You, you doing anything else? Yeah, okay, yeah. And so yeah, Clough had scored two hundred and fifty-one goals. Very prolific it was. score. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think he was. Was he the fastest or the second fastest man ever to two hundred and fifty league goals? In- I wouldn't be surprised. You are the man um, to know that in this room, though, not me. But uh, I know he's a very prolific goal scorer and a great player. And so, yeah, I was I was really sceptical about. Yeah, you know, I didn't didn't really understand sceptical one way. I didn't really understand why my dad had such an affection for him and why yeah. he had such a uh, a love for him. Um, and so I thought that was worth worth going into. Yeah. Um, and I also thought you know there's been loads written about Clough at Derby and Forest. Quite yeah, understandably, it's a fascinating story. Yeah. But Clough, the player at Middlesbrough and then at Sunderland, Clough at Hartlepool, Clough at Brighton. Hadn't really been done, so this is a chance to do a full so, biography. Well, you, you certainly attacked it with gusto because it's a big, thick wedge of a tome, isn't it? Yeah, and it was yeah, it was a lot of research. Then. And, and yeah, Richard was great because he gave me a lot of his research, um, which he, I guess he didn't. Have, I mean, maybe that was part of the negotiation, but he was helpful in a way he probably didn't need to be. So right. I'm very grateful to to him for that. So what kind but of? I only, I only ever met Clough once. I was going to ask you. That was my next question. Um, what kind of experience do you so, have? So well, I, I I wrote to Nigel. Um, and explain what I was doing mm-hmm. and sent him copies to my books to sort of say, look, yeah. this is the style yeah. I'll be written in. I'm not a Walter. And, he, said, and he basically it. said, please don't do this and sent the books back. Did he really? So Why do you think he did that? I think he's just sick of people talking about his dad and obviously the alcoholism and everything. And yeah. there's certain things in, I mean, things that um, well, presumably you sort of pick up rumours, but you could, I couldn't, I mean, partly I didn't really want to stand them up of difficulties within the family that I didn't stray into. But Jonathan, the, the, and I, the way the family night was written was very quite problematic. Yes. Because obviously the guy's passed away, so the libel laws don't apply, but he starts... Well, they apply in, to John Giles, which... Well, exactly, yeah, which he got very upset about. But but the, the reason I say that, and I'm sorry to cut you off, but just I really want to make the point that he, David Peace brings alcohol and alcoholism into Brian Clough's life in that fictional account much earlier than it happened in real life. Is that fair? No. 
Okay, carry on. Now, um, this is one of the interesting things I found. I put in, just put a letter in the Middlesbrough Evening Gazette and asked anybody who knew Clough, get in touch. Yeah. And a few people did. Right. And basically what, what I found out was Clough was almost entirely teetotal until he did his knee. Right, interesting. And okay. um, the stories about he'd go to uh, Red Kerr races every year mm-hmm. and apparently it was incredibly tight. Mm-hmm. He just wouldn't put bets on, wouldn't get his round in. Right. Um, there was a couple of jockeys, I can't remember the name of the jockey who, who I spoke to, but yeah, he, he would sort of, you know, when his races were over, he'd go and, you know, go and meet Clough um, and Clough would have, you know, have, you know, one beer, maybe two, but mm. didn't sort of drink heavily until he had the injury, which was Boxing Day 62. So this is the time I met Clough, was at Leicester. Uh, he was doing commentary, uh, punditry for Radio East Midlands on England v. Seven Montenegro, I think it was, a, it was an England friendly anyway. And what year was this? I, th- I think it, would, it must have been, I don't know, say... 2003, it was a year or two before he died. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and it, you know, so just by chance, I was behind him in the queue to get mm-hmm. coffee at half-time. And so I said to him, yeah, Brian, I don't normally do this, but you know, you're my dad's favourite player. And he's like, very kind of to say, sort of mm-hmm. son. Mm-hmm. And so then I'm sort of, shit, I'm talking to Brian Clough. Yeah, yeah, to say. So yeah. Like, yeah my, my dad was there yeah, when you did your knee, boxing this Oh, no. And he said, yeah, he said it ruined his Christmas. And as I said, I was like, what a fucking stupid thing to say. <laughs> yeah. And Clough turns around and he goes, I'll tell you what, son, it fucking ruined mine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that was it. So I thought, brilliant. In yeah. two sentences, I got put down by Clough. Mm. Perfect. Did you get the, uh, I'm researching and writing the book, did you get the, uh, the feeling that everything that Clough did post his injury was informed by the injury and the stage in the career that it happened uh yeah i mean if you if by the injury you mean the injury and his difficulty in in rehabilitating himself sure. and the way he was treated by Sondland, which was pretty shabby right okay i mean i think he was a very difficult figure i think he was a difficult figure anyway mm. and I, I got the impression a lot of his former teammates didn't particularly like him right uh, but they respected his ability yeah um but he was given a job as youth coach at Sunderland and was pretty successful. I think he took Sunderland to the semi-finals of the final of the FA Youth Cup. Right. Um, and then um, something got promoted in 63-4. Alan Brown, our manager, left to go to Sheffield Wednesday because they wouldn't give him a pay rise. And Sunderland didn't even have a manager the first two months of the following season, in which time they played a 15-year-old goalkeeper. That's how much of a shambles the thing was. Right. Um, more things change, eh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, a kid called Derek Forster, who was Dennis Chew's best man. Um, okay. And they ended up appointing uh, um, George Hardwick, mm. who uh, had, had known Clough from Middlesbrough, I think, but a legendary drinker and womaniser. Right. And he made, you know, and Clough was sort of still there as a youth coach. And Sunderland had a pretty difficult um, time back in the top flight and they decided around February, March to get rid of Hardwick. Mm. And they ended up winning, I don't know, like seven of the last eight games or something and staying up very comfortably. Mm. But the decision had already been made to get rid of him. Um, and the story is that Hardwick would have brought in Clough as his assistant and then you start to think, well, maybe Clough then would have taken over mm. and it would have been Sunderland winning two European Cups. Right. That's that's the sort of romantic Sliding doors moment. That people in Sunderland like to tell themselves. Right, okay. Are you one of those people in no. Sunderland? No, okay. No, like, it doesn't work like that. No, okay. I, I would agree with that. Um, but basically, if you've got a board that stupid, mm. that board's going to be that stupid, whoever the manager is. Right, true. Yeah, that's probably true. A fascinating character, though, right? A guy well worthy of the of the sort of lengthy biography that you wrote about. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot to get, get into in there, isn't there? 
Yeah, and I, what I what I hope I've done is to be even-handed because I think a lot of um, did you get any blowback from people around it? Yeah, a load. Because um, a lot of people don't want to hear that their hero was in many ways not that pleasant. And how how did you deal with that sort of criticism? Well, you you look at the specifics. You know, if they're saying something specific that you're wrong here, yeah, you you look at it and you kind of look at the evidence and go and decide whether you were wrong. And if you were you were wrong, you change it for subsequent mm. editions and you apologise. Yeah. Um, it's not always that easy to be as analytical about that if we're talking about matters of opinion, though. Well, and, sure, and and yeah. but you you have to sort of look: is is my opinion on this justified? Yeah, and it either is or it isn't. And yeah. if it is, well, okay, he disagrees with me. Have you ever written a book that's been poorly received? Um, well, they haven't all been brilliantly received. No. But the Brian Clough one is clearly an emotionally led response from people who are upset about it for the reasons you've already stated. Yeah. Yes, um, and you know, I, I guess if you... I mean, what, what I found really odd about that book was how few of the players who played for him through the 90s... Well, even, even the 70s, 70s 80s, late 70s, 80s, 90s, the, the, the end of, you know, the, the, the tail end of Forest, how few of them were prepared to talk to me. Right. Um, I found that really weird. So, what reasons were given? Well, John McGovern said that he was bringing out his own book, which is you know it's fair enough. I understand mm. that. Steve Hodge was really reluctant because he was bringing out his own book, um, and then he he did agree to the interview, and then got really stroppy about it for reasons I, I really don't understand. Right. Um, Stuart Pearce, I was out in Colombia at the under uh, under uh, twenty World Cup in two thousand eleven when Pearce was under twenty one manager. So Brian Eastick was was the manager of England team, but Pearce sort of then and sure. And, and you know, there's only me and one of the journalists there. So we we got great access to players and everything. We were sort of hanging around the hotels and whatever. Mm. And so, you know, I said to Pierce, you know, any chance of doing an interview? He said, oh, yeah, no problem. Then he found out what the interview was about. He said, no, I'm not doing it. Right. And I went, wow. Well, why? You know, yeah. Anything you don't want to answer, just say I don't want to answer. That's fine. He didn't do it. He didn't but give you a reason. To do it. Yeah. Right. Um, Strange. Uh, what's his name? Um, his son was manager of Blackburn. Um, Bowyer, Gary Bowyer. Yeah. So through Gary Bowyer, got in touch with Ian Bowyer, and Gary Bowyer yeah. thought Ian Bowyer would do it. Yeah. And seemed kind of yeah, he'd be fine. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I got a good introduction to Gary Bowyer. So I, yeah, I think Gary Bowyer trusted me. And then Ian Bowyer was now I just don't want to do it. Right. So I, I don't know. I, I found it really, really odd. But but you, you pressed on regardless. Yeah. 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 I mean, around this sort of time, is this when you brought this is when you brought out the Blizzard, right? Uh, yeah, that was also yeah. 2010, the idea when I was back up in Sunderland, yeah. And that was motivated from a, for an idea that long-form writing was underappreciated, maybe, something like that? Well, yeah. There the, wasn't the, as much space for it now? Yeah, the real impetus was it was, it was um, coming up to the 2010 World Cup in South Africa, and I had this story I'd found about um, a player called Steve McConey. First, sorry, first of all, explain people, to people very, very briefly what the Blizzard actually is, just in case I don't Okay, so the, the Blizzard is a quarterly magazine... Um, it's 190 pages, uh, and it, it's long form articles. It's it's stuff you wouldn't find elsewhere. It tries to give a platform to to writing that has no place in more mainstream magazines or in in. And you mean the subject, not the fact that people can't punctuate their sentences and stuff yes. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. The, yeah, the subject matter or the length at yeah. which they go into it. Yeah. And it, the idea is, it's um, writers who have this sort of burning idea they want to want to get out there, but they don't have any other stage for it. Sure. Um, and it, it's a profit share, and the idea is worth. So, yeah, so the idea came about. I, I wanted to write this piece on Steve McConey, first black South African to play professionally in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, horrendous story in many ways, and you know, it, journalistically, a great story. Mm. That just the experience of a black guy who's grown up under apartheid, 
coming to a country which obviously England was by no means racially perfect in mm. the 1950s, but did not have apartheid. It was different, yeah. And him sort of struggling to deal with... So, I mean, just a very brief example of that. His first... He arrives and he's put up in a hotel... He's signed by Coventry, but he's put up in a hotel in London his first night. And he goes out to buy a newspaper and he gets lost. And it takes him, yes, half an hour to pluck up the courage to approach a white policeman to ask for directions back to the hotel. Right. Because in South Africa, you just would not do that at the right, time. Right, yeah. So it, it, it's it's interesting from that point of view in terms of just the... The, the little details, the, the the human cost of apartheid. Yeah. Quite apart from the you know the the the, the sort of top down. This is just a terrible idea that yeah. is sort of natural. Well, it's, a, it's almost like a psychological jail as well as a physical jail or yeah, a, yeah, apartheid system. Yeah. Um, yeah. and then uh, you know he never really made it. Coventry he played in the Netherlands. How, had interestingly, decided. just I mean, how did they, how did they actually discover him in the first place? Um, he'd he'd played against uh, a team that Stanley Matthews either played for or was coaching. Right, okay. And Sonny Matthews wanted to sign him immediately. Right. Um, but his dad insisted he completed his studies. Right, okay. Uh, which is pretty ballsy because he was going to get you know, really good money by, you know, in South African standards. Yeah, yeah. Um, But he was obviously a very intelligent bloke because he, he, hmm. his, he, he, you know, sort of peripatetic career ends up in Canada, ends up becoming a professor of, I can't remember if it was psychology or psychiatry in Canada, goes to New York and he's working as a you know, professor there. Right. And he'd married a, I think she was a South African woman he'd met in England, uh, and they'd had at least one kid, and they got divorced, and it was pretty acrimonious, and he lost custody of, of the kid, kids. Yeah. And soon after that, acid was thrown in the wife, in, in the face of his wife, ex-wife, and lawyer, and he was blamed for it and ended up serving, I don't know, 11 or 12 years. Right. Uh, it was a Dutch journalist, did, did, you know, did research into it, was very sort of sceptical as to whether... He had done it mm. and turned up letters between the CIA and the South African security forces. The South Africans essentially saying, because McConey was a very outspoken pro ANC. Distant, basically, isn't he? Yeah, at this point. And they were saying, take this guy out. Now, whether the acid attack is part of that, whether that's coincidence, right. who knows? I mean, well, I've got what no a story idea. that is. But it's a great story, but it's also yeah. a story you can't tell briefly, as no. I've just proved. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, but, yeah, it's you, a lot of your stories, actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, don't get me on the Beyonce story. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's two and a half thousand, three thousand words minimum. Yeah. Um, and I managed to track down a couple of people involved in the story, and and I couldn't place it anyway. Newspapers were saying, no one give you 800 words, which, okay, that's just the, the format of newspapers in those days. Yeah. Um, uh, 442 was saying no before the World Cup we need positive stories about South Africa right. for, for our advertising it's just yeah. nonsense you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. and so I was really frustrated by that and I was um, I was in a pub in Sunderland uh, the night of night Sunderland beat Bolton 4-0 or 4-1 Darren mm. Ben scored a hat-trick right. ended 108 days without a win for Steve Bruce's men right. <laughs> okay. and I was raging about it and saying yeah, what we need we need the right to take control and we need something, none of this nonsense of advertisers dictating what the copy is. Yeah. And we, you know, it's a profit share and we all share the risk and you know, maybe we don't make any money out of it, but at least we're getting the stories out. Yeah. Very uh, noble. Were you on the top of the table at this point? <laughs> Tub thumping. I was probably just drunk. Yeah, okay, right. <laughs> and um, a mate I'd known from, from school said, oh, you know what I do for a living? I was like, yeah, yeah, you're a designer and publisher. Oh, hang on. You're yeah, a designer okay. and publisher. Right. And so from then we... Yeah, it took about a year to put the, put the thing together. Well, people have really embraced it. I mean, not just readers, but um, writers as well, right? You've had everyone, oh, yeah. you've had a who's who, really, haven't you? And and you know, the are you still involved in the day to day of it? Yeah, I'm still the editor. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, and and yeah, you know, those writers who in in that first year 
committed to writing for it when there was absolutely no guarantee they'd make any money from it. Yeah. In fact, a very good chance they wouldn't make any money yeah. from it. And a few of them wouldn't do that now, let me tell you. They've <laughs> got a bit used to a pound note, haven't they? Um, but yeah, very grateful to them for, for so taking I remember, the risk. Well, I remember the launch event. I remember being being fascinated and I hope one day hoping to be asked to write for it, but then you told me that you have to go and submit ideas and that's when it sort of fell flat for me because, <laughs> yeah, I don't have any good ideas. Um, what's next for you, Jonathan? What, what are you working on at the moment? I know you've put a book out about Barcelona and this idea of, of um, Guardiola. I don't want to be too simplistic, but this idea of Guardiola versus Mourinho and Mourinho's everything. Mar- oh, actually, in a weird way, the way Mourinho's actions have been informed by this rejection by Barcelona, right? In the same way, Klaus with his injury and these things help to shape us, don't they? And your book touches on that, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really about how Johan Cruyff's ideas as disseminated at Barcelona in the 90s when yeah, Cruyff had just gone, yeah. uh, Bobby Robson's there for a year, then Van Hal takes over, mm-hmm. and Van Hal's too... Very s- respectful to Bobby Robson, wasn't he? During his um, opening press conference, yeah, I mean, not, uh, Van Hal, it, Van it's Hal's now Van Hal's team yeah. <laughs> straight away, yeah. But Van Hal's not a man to whom respect comes yeah. naturally, shall we say? Any experiences with him? Yeah, God, yeah, yeah. Any uh, worth repeating? Yeah, I mean, like the there was a League Cup final last year, and I met him that morning in a hotel in London, um, and he's a terrifying man. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, yeah, we. Had, I mean, he was good. We had like I don't know two and a half hours. I I, I came out with a throbbing headache because he just sort of. Be- yeah, berates you. Yeah, yeah. His words uh, assault but, you. And he he wanted me to send him a transcript of the conversation, so yeah, you know, he could change anything that he hadn't expressed. Probably well, fair enough, you know. Right. Um. I, yeah. I don't have any objections to that. I have objections to people want to rewrite the finished copy. Sure. But to get their quotes right, I think sure. it's fair. That's enough. a fairly common thing with journalists, though. Yeah. Y- yeah. I mean, yes. For 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 long form pieces where you got time, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. Um. And then he sent me back the transcript going, I'm very disappointed in this. <laughs> this reads like something for the sun. So, like, mate, it's your words. Yeah, you said it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Unless you're saying my questions were so bad, you couldn't say anything yeah. non-tabloidy about yeah. them. Was he saying that? Well, he really slagged off Mourinho, which is interesting. Did you eat with this, but you're having a debate over email on this, are you? Yeah. I mean, okay. I tried to kind of keep that as short as possible. Yeah, but... I bet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he doesn't like he doesn't like anyone, does he, Van Gogh? Well, he, he got on very well, Mourinho, until the moment Mourinho replaced him. Right. And his, I mean, he did an interview for BBC fairly recently where, you know, he said all this again. Yeah. Uh, that he really had no notion until that FA Cup final that he was getting sacked. Right. And his wife had said, no, the directors are giving me the cold shoulder. You're getting sacked. This is yeah. not, this is not normal. I presume Louis thought he knew best at that point. Which would be very much in character for the <laughs> well, man. Well, he, now he's quite deferential to uh, Trudeau. Is he? Okay. Um, okay, right. But he, um, I heard this crazy, uh, almost, almost unimaginably Dutch story about him falling out with Cruyff over some dinner and someone having a bereavement and leaving and not saying enough thank yous or something like that as well. Yes, yeah, so that's that's Van Hal's version of a story. Um, Cruyff denied denied it. Okay, um, they they fell out because they both wanted the Ajax job. Essentially, okay. is the truth of it. Okay, right. and every time one of them got the Ajax job, the other one got appointed as director of football. Okay, <laughs> and undermine them. Okay, yeah. Okay. Um, but the yeah the the, the kind of uh, the really great line, which is quite hard to get across in print, so hopefully I can do it justice by speaking it, mm. was um, you know I was saying to him, but you know he he was being very critical of Mourinho of having accepted the job mm. behind his back, and then then right. he said, but I can understand why he would want the job. Right. Okay. I see. Because okay. United, are, you know, the biggest club in 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 England, yeah. and. For him, that kind of thing is important. Right, okay. So it's quite patronising, isn't it? Quite yeah, well, I, but I think it's interesting because I think it, it is, it tells you why Mourinho is the way he is as well. That I, I, yeah, my sort of thesis through the Barcelona legacy hmm. um, 
which has just come out in paperback. Yeah, if people want it. Available from all good uh, bookshops, I'm sure, Jonathan. And some um, bad ones as well, I expect. Uh, <laughs> well, fingers, fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is that Mourinho always felt like an outsider? He, he always yes. felt he wasn't taken seriously by people sure. in Barcelona. And you know, the Barcelona press referred to him as, as the translator. Yeah. And that with other people it might have just been a joke, but for him, hmm. he felt they because he didn't have any footballing background, any playing experience, that that was a yeah that was a dig that clearly unsettled him. So, I, I think that's what Van Hal was referring to. That, mm. Yeah, for him, yeah. being manager of Manchester United was a big deal because yeah. he needed that sort of credibility and yeah. acceptance. Yeah. Um, did you have any experience with Jose Mourinho when writing the book? No, I mean press conferences and okay. yeah, I've I've uh, been dealing with Mourinho since what 2004 when he first. Yeah. How do you find it? Yeah, How do you find? Presumably, he's changed character since those days. Yeah, well, see, those days he was sort of like a Richard the Third figure that he, yeah, yeah he was. Obviously, Machiavellian, terrible in many ways, but mm. he was fun. So you get away with it. He had that charm. But since his Real Madrid days, he's you know, he's just really grumpy and miserable. And um, <coughs> you know, I, I think I think what happened to him. Well, okay. The the best way of looking at this is look at what Salcia's done. Salcia's can. I mean, whatever your doubts about him tactically and whatever, he connected with the players. <coughs> and that game away in Paris, yeah. the way that he he got to two one up. They were under pressure beginning of the second half and he went to a 5-4-1 and basically killed the game for half an hour. And it, you know, his his plan was, if we just need one goal and we go at them in the last 10 minutes, they will bottle it because they are PSG and we are Manchester United. Yeah. And this is what we do and that's what they do. Yeah. And that reading of the emotional mood mm. is a key of management. And Mourinho is not as effective. And Mourinho that. used to be brilliant at that. If you talk to Vita Bayer, mm. um, he, he tells you um, about a game between Porto and Benfica when Mourinho said, look, this ref is weak, he will send off one of our players because the crowd will get at him mm. and he'll, he'll bottle it. So when we go down 10 men, this is what we do. And sure enough, it happened. Yeah. And because they'd planned for it, yeah, he yeah. was able, you know, it, it worked and they won the game. At that point, people are thinking he's some kind of soothsayer. Like, yeah. yeah okay. And that's what, you know, his Porto team back then, they're like members of a cult. They cannot conceive yeah. any negativity about Mourinho. They, they just kind of think he's a, a genius who could tell the future. Yeah. And you almost saw it when his... Chelsea team the second time round when they beat you know they played PSG two years running and the first season they get it was a similar thing they needed a goal in the last ten minutes and they ended up just chucking every forward on the pitch mm. and PSG bottled it because that's what yeah. PSG do yeah but that, John Terry afterwards said oh we planned at every stage of a game what would happen if we you know if if it's three two this is what we do if it's three one this is what we do yeah so we knew and that level of planning he. He is, I mean, maybe I'm slightly on the man point by saying that um, he did that at Chelsea the second time round. Yeah. But I think... It's coming less and less prevalent he as time lo- goes he on. He lost a basic faith and connection with players at Real Madrid. Right, okay. And there were times at Chelsea the second time round where he did rekindle it. Hmm. But I think he struggles with younger players probably to connect with them. But he's admitted that himself, hasn't he? Yeah, he has. Yeah. And I think, I guess, players are different now. Maybe it's a generational gap. They're not quite yeah. the same. He maybe doesn't quite have the same hunger. Yeah. Um, All right. What's next for you, Jonathan? What are you working on at the moment? What are, you, what are your plans? Well, I've got a book coming out in the autumn on... Um... You're prolific. You're born to... You're Craig David. You're born to do it. <laughs> Absolutely born to do it. I just don't understand that reference. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I know it's something to do with music, but... Yeah. Just... Like, can I just say, no one under the age of 30 is going to understand it. Oh, just don't worry about it. Yeah. What's the, what's the next book about? So it's about um, Hungarian football between 1916 and 1956. Of course it is. Um, well, the, the, the idea of, of Cruyff for Barcelona in the 90s is... From that hub, a whole mm. load of other stuff mm. floods out, and it, it shapes all our football. You know, he had Mourinho, he had Guardiola, he had uh, Luis Enrique, mm. 
Uh, he had Kuman there for a while. He had uh, Lopetegui had, had just gone. So Cruyff's influence sort of spreads out. Um, and I think the only other club you can say where, where something similar happened, where one club has a, has a very specific way of playing and there's, its players sort of then spread across the globe and shape how football is played, is Entekar of Budapest in the early 1920s. Mm-hmm. Now, I hoped in writing this book, I'd be able to understand why they became brilliant. Yeah. I have failed in that. I'll tell you that now. <laughs> okay. Um, but the Has origin- it become something else then? Has it become more of a different kind of book than, well, no, than you I mean, started? I, I talk about the origins and, and yeah, you, you can trace why they started playing the way they did, which is, I mean, there's, there's a... I, I mean, it's an incredible, incredibly difficult task. You don't. I mean, presumably you don't speak Hungarian, so no. But I, I was able to employ Hungarians to to do a lot of the research for me, and actually a lot of the people involved are English. Okay. Uh, so there's a guy, um, a bloke called Edward Shires, who worked in a typewriter factory in Manchester in the 1890s. Right. Gave up his job to become a typewriter salesman in in Vienna. Um, began importing tennis and table tennis equipment. Basically, introduced table tennis to the Austro-Hungarian right. Empire. Right. And then through his tennis connections, began to play football and he ends up moving to Budapest to, to crack the very difficult Hungarian typewriter market. <laughs> yeah, and, notoriously uh, tough. Yeah, okay. I've literally got a lot of, uh, an interview with him from 1933 where he, he, he uses that phrase. Does he really? Yeah. Okay. Um, and he he plays one season at MTKR and then gets injured. So he sort of becomes a director. And during the war, he helps get Jimmy Hogan, who'd been a great, well, he, he'd been a, an average player in England. Uh, he's a guy, a guy from Burnley of Irish descent, um, but he worked with the Austrian team before the First World War. He worked uh, in uh, Dordrecht in the Netherlands in 1912, and he was interned in Austria during the First World War. Uh, Shires manages to get him to Budapest, where he takes over MT Car and takes a team who already had an idea of themselves as being a, a nice passing team and takes that to the next level. And this informs Honved and the Mighty Maggers and what came along later. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. And but then the team of the nineteen twenties is full of very talented players, but they all, all a huge proportion, go on to become very talented coaches, mm-hmm. and they spread across the world because Hungary's in such a terrible political and economic state in the nineteen twenties, and a lot of those coaches are Jewish, mm-hmm. and so as Hungary becomes more and more right wing, the need for them to get out is more apparent. Okay, and and yeah, a lot of them end up either narrowly escaping death camps or, or not escaping death camps. Sounds fascinating, and I'm sure you'll do it more than justice, despite your uh, your self-deprecating... So well, you... look, if this book is not a great book, it's entirely my fault. The, okay. mater- the material is A-grade. Okay, okay. so it's it's in your hands. There's, there's spies, there's executions, there's tragedy, there's comedy. Well, that sounds there's... like a bit of a bit of Le Carre going on. Oh, I hope it is. I love yeah. Le Carre. Yeah, same. All right, good. Well, listen, I think that's about time, because I don't like doing shows longer than an hour. And we're on 58 minutes, believe it or not. Our listeners will not feel that way at all, I'm sure. Thank you very much for your time, Jonathan. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a great pleasure. And everyone listening, please go out and buy. I mean, Jonathan's written a book about football for everyone. Uh, so I'm sure you can find something with his back catalogue, his bibliography to enjoy. So go out and find something by Jonathan Wilson now. And buy uh, the Blizzard as well. And do buy the Blizzard. Subscribe to that. Very important. It's important for journalism and, and all those other highfalutin ideas. Jonathan, you'll be back on the continent soon, I'm sure because um, we often see you as part of this parish if selected exactly you're available for selection and that's what we like uh, thanks very who, much who was I quoting there? Uh, if selected you were quoting Dickie Borthwick the old 85 year old <laughs> guy or, or was it the old goalkeeper you are quoting? no it's um, it's Alf Ramsey to it's either Hurst or Bobby Charlton right um, when uh, somebody says yeah, after National Late 60 somebody says I'll see you next time and 
yeah, either has shot and says to says to Ramsey, oh, yeah, I'll see you next time. And he, yeah. If selected, yeah, nice. Well, the reason I'm so there was a, there was a story in the newspaper recently of a goalkeeper who's at the age of 78 is still playing, and there's a quote from him saying that he wants to carry on playing and he's enjoying the game. And at the end, he says, "If selected, of course." And it's like you're 78. I mean, if you if you're you're a part of the team, well, you're not. Anyway, well, we'll leave on that note, and we'll see you see you again soon, Jonathan. Thanks for your time. Cheers. Thank you. This episode of Ramble Meets was sponsored by Bet365. This was a Radio Stakhanov production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.